Well, good morning to each one of you. Thank you for being with us here in our in-person service. And of course, there are many uh, who are participating in our online service right now or later on today. And so uh, thank you, though, for being here with us for the in-person version, especially if this is your uh, first week back in the building with us for an in-person service. We're really, really glad uh, to have you. And I've talked to a couple of you already this morning if this is your first time coming back or if this is just your first time or one of your first times ever at Christ Community. If you're a guest, if you're visiting with friends or family, um, or you just decided you wanted to come uh, to church this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, I know walking into a new church for the first time is hard in the most ordinary of times, and then uh, you add everything that's going on in the world, um, it makes it even more more difficult, more unusual. So thanks for being here with us, all of you. And as we uh, begin a new series, uh, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for the summer looking at the parables of Jesus, but we're starting a new series for the next five weeks here on uh, how we change and the fact that we as people can change. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 in that. Um, I'd love to pray and ask for God's help for the Spirit to be at work doing that work of change in our lives, even now as we look at this passage. So let me pray and then we'll dive into this text together. So Father in heaven, thank you that you have brought this group of people together here in this room. We thank you for those at the other Christ community campuses who are gathering across our city in person and online this morning. We pray that we would be uh, bound up together uh, in your spirit, even if we're absent from one another in the body, that we'd be present with you uh, in the spirit and together in your body through the spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he unites us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was younger, uh, kind of at the end of high school, early college, I, you know, 18, 19 years old, I, I would think about future me, about future Bill, and where future Bill would be, what he, who he would be in 20 years, and I'm telling you, that future Bill was amazing. I mean, he was going to, he was going to finally, uh, you know, conquer all the bad habits. He was going to have his act together. Uh, he was going to, you know, achieve all these uh, personal and professional goals and, uh, you know, all these, all these changes. And it's just like, and surely, you know, 18, 19 years, 20 years, two decades, that's, that's enough time uh, for a lot of change and transformation to happen. And, you know, but now, uh, I, you know, I just turned 38 earlier this year. It's about 20 years on from uh, the beginning of college, and, you know, um, there's still a pretty big expectation reality gap between the vision of 20 years ago and, and my life now. And in many ways, God has, has done so much. He's brought, you know, so many gifts and blessings, but there are still moments when it's like, why am I still caught up in doing things or looking for satisfaction in places that I know won't satisfy whether that's in food or in how much money is in the checking account or how much money isn't there or how much the, uh, the stock market goes up and down and what that means for a retirement account. Why do I keep doing things I know won't bring me life? And I wonder if you can relate to that, whether you're younger, whether you're older in life, that there is just this sense of why do we get stuck doing the same things we know don't bring us life. The sense that it's just so hard to change. 
And, and we love stories of transformation, right? We love the before and after weight loss photos. I mean, if you, the reason I think there's a million different iterations of the home makeover show on HGTV is that we love stories of transformation. We love seeing the before and the after. But sometimes I think we wonder, can this ever really happen for me? Can there really be a before and after for me, a, a change in my life? We try. We want to change. But sometimes we still just feel stuck. And, and the result of that is that there are endless books and videos and programs out there to try to help us change, right? It's a, it's a billion-dollar industry. And for some, the answer when you begin to dig into that is, is willpower. You've got to work harder, hustle. You know, just get out there, grind. you just got to do it. Uh, for others, you start looking at maybe it's a combination of these, but maybe the, the answer to change is, is technology. There's a new life hack, a, hack a, new, a new app, a new program, a new club, or diet, or cleanse, or planner, or notebook, or, or oil scent, or whatever it might be that's going to finally break you free of all those patterns and bad habits and things that you want to be different. Uh, and I think for others, this change is just, or the solution is just to try to stop changing altogether. So, you know, maybe I don't need to change. Maybe I just need to accept myself for who I am. You know, but I think the irony of that is that even sort of trying to say, you know, maybe I don't need to change. Maybe I just need to accept that this is who I am. Like, even that is a change, right? You're moving from a place of, gosh, like I feel bad about myself to a place of, okay, I just need to accept myself. Even that is, is an effort to change. And it's actually a lot of work. Not caring what others think and just accepting yourself for who you are takes a lot of work. What I want to suggest to us this morning, though, is that the Bible offers us another way. That those who follow Jesus have another option open to them besides just trying harder to try to do it with our willpower than technology or just trying to accept ourselves more deeply. That there is a new, that there's a, a different path that's open to us. And as it turns out, it involves a whole new way of approaching the problem and the solution. A whole new way of viewing, understanding what the problem is, and looking at the solution. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 and see how this passage lays out how following Jesus leads to a new type of life. How following Jesus leads to a new type of life. A life where change and transformation are not just possible, but they, where they actually become inevitable. They actually become inevitable. But where does change start? Well, it starts with this foundational reality. And I hope if you only write down one thing, if you only take one note this morning, I hope it's this, that only being loved can change you. That only being loved can change you. So in this first message, we're going to look at where change starts with being loved. And as we do that, we're going to see the problem with change. We're going to see the hope for change. And then we're going to look at a next step for change. Okay, so we're going to see the, the problem. Then we're going to look at the hope for change and then a next step. So here's the problem. The problem with change is why working harder doesn't work. That's what we're going to look at the problem. Why working harder why trying harder doesn't work. 
And the problem is really that the whole, that's, that, that, that's really what Paul is doing in the full, whole first part of Romans. We're getting here, we're jumping in the middle here at chapter 12. It's a really pivotal point in the book. But all through the first 11 chapters, in a lot of ways, Paul is laying out that there's this problem with what he identifies as a sin, our turning away from God, our rejection of him, our choosing to define good and evil on our own, that has led us into this place of, of really, he even used the language of, of slavery, of bondage to sin. And in this whole first part of Romans, that's what he's been unpacking. Here is this problem that has enslaved us as locked us in. But then you get here to chapter 12, and Paul, a follower of Jesus who wrote this letter, he's writing to Christians in Rome who he hasn't been with, he hasn't met them personally, he's sending them a letter. He pulls on everything that he's laid out in the first part of this, of this letter, everything in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, and he kind of brings it to bear in this hinge point in the letter with this little word, therefore, So take a look again at verse 1 in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. And again, experts who make their, their life's work studying the New Testament and in the gospel in Romans in particular, they really say that, that that verse 1 of Romans chapter 12, it is like a, a giant hinge in the book. And that that little word, therefore, is almost like the, the, the pin in that hinge. It connects the two movements, the two portions of Romans. It brings them together in one. And Paul has shown us from the beginning of the letter that both religious and irreligious efforts do not work to change us, to get the life we long for, the life we were designed for. We are all stuck in the same death-inducing patterns. But here he's laying out the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, all that. That's what he's done in the first half of the book. Or it's longer than that, the first part of the book, I should say. And then here with the therefore, he pivots to this new life that Jesus makes possible, the transformation of every part of life. You know, at Christ Community, we say we want to be a church for Monday, not just a church for Sunday, because this is every part of life. This is all of life, not just an hour on Sunday. This is the whole of life that needs to be changed and transformed But he doesn't want us to forget that it isn't willpower. It isn't just trying harder that makes the difference. Because I think we've all had the experience of just trying harder, of just exercising willpower not being enough to transform us, right? And and there's lots of different, you know, you could look in in kind of psychology and sociology. There's lots of studies that, that show how just, you know, exercising willpower doesn't lead to lasting change. But I mean, we don't, I don't think we have to look at, at sort of empirical studies, right? All I have to do is look at my bookshelf and my basement to know that willpower isn't enough. And first, my bookshelf. I look at my bookshelf, and every, I don't know, maybe you'd have to ask Rachel, probably once every six to 12 months, I decide I'm really going di- to read more classics. I didn't read enough classics when I was younger. And so I've got, you know, half-finished copy of Don Quixote, half-finished copy of the Iliad, like my bookshelf. And I, I always, like, ramp myself up, and for two, three weeks, maybe even a month, I, I work really hard to read this classic, and then, you know, life happens, and I've got a, a bookshelf full of unfinished classics. And then there's my, my basement. And there, there's two things about the basement. One, down in the basement there are, um, well, there's discarded, you know, workout equipment. So there's, you know, a pull-up bar that I got that was sure going to lead to me having a habit of, of doing pull-ups regularly. Um, 
And, but then there's just the basement itself. Because it feels like every six months, you know, we go down there and we clean and we organize. And that basement, it looks awesome. And then six months later, it's a, just a mess again. <laughs> like no matter how much we say at this time, and maybe we don't have a garage. Maybe this is your garage for you. We don't have a garage. Maybe it's the garage. But it's like this time, we're really going to put things away. We're not just going to set them down there on that table <laughs> until it becomes this pile of stuff that we don't know where it goes. But then, you know, three, four, five months later, it's we're back and we've got to spend a whole Saturday afternoon organizing the basement again. And again, there are lots of studies on this, but we know willpower can change us for a little while. But it, I feel like willpower, it works like stretching a rubber band, right? If you, as long as you're consciously kind of with your attention focused on stretching that rubber band and you're actively holding it, you can keep it apart. But as soon as you get distracted, as soon as something happens and you start focusing on something else, right? You just, as soon as you let go of it, it just goes back to its shape that it was before, I feel like that's how willpower often works and change. As long as we're able to kind of exert conscious effort, attention, willpower, we can make some change. But inevitably, life comes up, stuff in our life happens, and our attention shifts, and that rubber band just pops right back to the shape that it always was. Now, if we could just decide, if we could just grit our teeth and do it, then the self-improvement industry of books and coaching, it wouldn't be a billion-dollar industry, right? If people could just decide, like, yeah, I'm just going to save money and invest responsibly for retirement and just do that, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't need a whole industry of, of coaching to help, but, or, or fitness, right? If people would say, I'm just going to eat better and work out every day, you wouldn't have gyms and trainers, right? We need this because willpower doesn't just work by itself. And I think this is because we, and I think this is especially true in the modern Western world, we are shaped heavily by, by a rationalism and have tended to sort of adopt a theory of change that could be expressed something like this. And I've got, I think I've got a slide for this here. Is that information plus willpower equals change and transformation. I think in the modern West, that is our framework. That we think if we can get the right information and have enough willpower, then we can make change and transformation in our lives. If I can just get enough information, if I can just get the right understanding of the problem and then decide and grip my teeth and try hard, then I will change. But this just doesn't work. And, and, and to be clear, it isn't because good information, facts, knowledge don't matter. They, they do. It just turns out that they aren't enough to produce lasting change. Just like there's nothing wrong with the equation one plus two, unless you want to equal five, right? There's nothing wrong with one and two. Unless you're trying to get the equation to equal five, then you're going to have to plug in some new numbers. And that's what I want to say for us this morning, that information plus willpower don't equal transformation. They just don't. They can get us part of the way there. They're they're necessary. (laughs) Certainly good information, truth, facts, learning are necessary, but they're not sufficient to change us. So, what hope do we have for change? That's what we want to look at next. And here, here's the hope. The only hope that we have for change is being loved. Only being loved can change you. So here's a radically different framework or different equation for change that we must begin to embrace if we want lasting change. And that is that being loved plus belonging 
equals lasting changed and transformation. Being loved plus belonging. And in the future weeks, we're going to look together more at the belonging part of that. Because it's really, we, we learn and change as we watch and imitate others. There's a lot there. We're going to look at that in the coming weeks. The reason Jesus created a community, created a church, we need one another to model this. But this week, today, I want to focus on that first part, the being loved part. So look again at verses 1 and 2, and I want to you to notice two key words that are essential to this lasting change that are in here in Romans chapter 12. One is mercies, and the other is mind. Mercies and mind. So, so listen again, and listen, or look again here, and, and listen specifically, look specifically for those two words. Verse 1 again, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, so first Paul highlights right there in verse 1, the mercies of God. And I think when we hear that word mercy, we, 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 just, we really need to do some work on it, because I think, at least for me, it's like when I hear the word mercy, <laughs> I often think of like someone begging for mercy, right? Like, please, no, don't do it. Like, I'm begging you for mercy. It's almost like the framework we hear when we read that word mercy is something like, you know, you've got the dirty Harry, kind of like the guy with the 44 Magnum, and you're down on your knees, and you're just begging, like, please don't do it. And at the last second, you know, he holsters the gun and gives us a second chance. But that is not, that is not what the word mercy means here. It's not the right image. If, if that's the image you have in your mind when you, when you think of the mercies of God, that, that's not the word here. In fact, what you discover when you chase this word down is that it just means pretty much the exact opposite of that image. Right? Nearly every time that word, well, let me, let me back up. That word is actually only used a handful of times in the New Testament. But it's used many, many, many times in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament it's a, a, called the Septuagint. So the Old Testament was originally uh, written in Hebrew, um, but as more and more Jews began to speak Greek, they, this is before the time of Jesus, they translated the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And the word that Paul uses here, and Paul is a good Bible scholar, knew the Septuagint well, is used many, many, many times in the Old Testament Greek translation. And nearly every single time it's used, in the Septuagint. It translates the Hebrew word rakam or rakamim, which is this word for God's tender, fierce, motherly love. It's actually based on the Hebrew word for womb. It's a very tender, again, it's just this fierce but tender motherly love. And again, remember God is, is neither male nor female. And it actually takes, when you get to Genesis chapter 1, you look there, it actually takes both men and women to fully image who God is, right? It, male and female, he made them in his image to display who God is. And Rakamim, it captures this tender love of a mother for her child. That's what 
Mercy is this tender love of a mother for her child. And let me just give you a few examples of how this word is used so you can begin to get a, a different picture, a fuller, a more biblical picture of what this word means. The first one is used all over the place. But let me just give you a couple of examples. The first one comes in the famous story about King Solomon's wisdom. And if you're even not a regular churchgoer, you may be familiar with this story because it's one that's kind of entered in. It's a great story of, of wisdom. Right, you may remember this is back from the Old Testament. These two women, they both have children. And one night there's this, this tragedy. And one of the women rolls over on her baby and it dies. But now there's this dispute over whose child is the living one and whose is the dead one. And so they come because both these women claim the living child. and They come to King Solomon, they tell their story, and what happens next is shocking. This is verse 25. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. And the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman. By no means put him to death. She is his mother. And that verse 26, that little phrase there, her heart yearned for her son. That word heart translated there, that's rakamim the love, the compassion, the mercy of a mother. Her heart, she's yearning for this child. Have mercy. Don't, don't hurt him. Here's another example. So that's a very literal example of a mother and a child. Here's another example of how this word begins to be used metaphorically for God and his people. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16. God's people, they, they have, they just have abandoned God but they feel like he's abandoned them. It's this moment of exile. This is the point in Israel's history where life has just gone terribly for them. They've rejected him, and they feel like, God, you, you, you promised that you would restore us one day, and you haven't, and they just feel overwhelmed, and they feel like, God, you have rejected us. You are never, you've just forsaken us. You've forgotten about us. This is how God responds to them in that moment, that feeling of being utterly abandoned by him. Verse 15, he says this to his people. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have compassion, she could have, have no rakamim, no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. When God looks at his people, even in their rejection of him, even in their, their abandonment of him, and he says, I'm going to keep my promise. Why am I going to keep my promise? Because can, can a woman forget her nursing child? Can she have no compassion, no rakamim on her son? God speaks to his people and reassures them, comparing himself to a nursing mother saying, how can a mom forget her baby? But even if she were able to forget, I will never forget you. That's how I love you. Because there is no bond, no attachment, no connection stronger than that between a mother and an infant. And that picture that God gives us to show us how much he loves us, is how much he loves you, that's the picture. When Paul says, I urge you, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, that's the picture we should have. This rakamim love, this, this compassion, this 
tender mercy of God for his people. For you, that's mercies. But the mercies, by the motherly compassion, longing, yearning, tender, but fierce affection, love of God, Paul says, I urge you, I appeal to you. So that's, that's mercies. We've got to get that, you see where I'm going to get this idea of being loved? Again, if you just see mercies as you know, someone who just decided not to kill you, but doesn't want to have anything to do with you, you're missing it. This is being loved by God like a mother loves her child. Okay, mercy. Second word here is mind. When we think of mind, again, we tend to, again, in Western rationalism, when you hear mind, when I hear mind, at least for me, my first kind of goes to that cognitive, rational, conscious thinking part of my, my brain. Like when I'm, I'm using my mind when I'm writing sermons, I'm using my mind when I'm doing math problems. That's what I think of when I think of, of mind, right? But our minds, our thinkings, our brain, there's so much more than that. That's, that kind of is just the left brain, the slow track cognition. That's really important, really, really important. But our right brain, right? We're we learning more and more. Our right brain is where we process experiences and feelings and emotions and stories and relationships. And that's all included in the concept of mind. So when Paul says here, well, you need to renew your mind, he's not just talking about you need to get some better facts and information into your left brain. The whole of who your imagination, your relationships, your connections, your attachments, the whole of your mind, the whole of your brain needs renewal. And what we're discovering more and more in brain science and neurobiology, and it makes sense with everything that God has revealed in the Bible, right? This book is always timely. is that change is not merely about getting better or different information into your left brain sort of filing cabinet. Notice I said it's not merely about that. It's it's not less than that, right? It's just not sufficient. Rather, change comes through new experiences, in particular of being loved, of having the experience of someone looking at you and saying, I want to be with you. I delight in you. I'll never leave you. I'm not going to walk out of the room. No matter what you've done, I'm going to stay with you in the midst of it. I will not walk away. Right? Knowing the fact that Jesus loves me, knowing the fact that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life is not the same thing as experiencing the reality of that. You can memorize those statements, those propositions. God loves me. John 3.16. But have you had the experience of God loving you? Let me me tell you a story. Actually, two stories here. The first one is about a British intellectual. He was trained at Oxford where he was later elected to a, a fellowship there. He was a rising theological star at Oxford. He taught Greek and philosophy in New Testament. I mean, this guy had more Bible knowledge, more information, more learning, knew the scriptures better than most of us will ever even attempt to. 
And, and then eventually he left the academy. He was a rising star at Oxford University, but he, he left the academy altogether and uh, actually joined the Anglican Church and became a priest and then eventually uh, went to be a missionary to kind of this, this outpost where there was a few kind of English uh, and Western settlers, but mostly wanted to do missionary work with indigenous people in that country. But it all fell flat. None of it seemed to work. None of it seemed to make a difference. To one moment, he was listening to someone read a teaching on the book of Romans, and everything changed for him. And this is what he wrote about the experience. He says, In an evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. At about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Some of you may have begun to recognize that story. That person was John Wesley, the great preacher and founder of the Methodist movement. And John, he had a head full of facts, information, but a heart that was cold that had never experienced the love of the living God for him. Friends, an experience of the love, the mercies, the rachamim of God is your only hope for change. My only hope for change. Which brings me to the second story. This one's shorter, but my own experience of the love of God, of, of my own sense, actually, of, of having that same sort of Wesley-like experience. I was in high school. I uh, was reluctantly reading my Bible one night, and I turned to Romans 8, verse 1, which says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And in that moment, for some reason, I don't know why God picked that moment in that verse, but it changed for me. I felt that my sins, even mine, not just generally that God loved the world, but that he loved me. That he hadn't just died on the cross to save people, but he had died on the cross to save me. He loves me. And I had grown up going to church every Sunday. I had a ton of Bible information. I could give you the books of the Bible in order. I knew the disciples' names. I had lots of Scripture memorized. But it wasn't until that night that I experienced the love of God for me. Only being loved can change you. Only... the, the right brain, the whole brain experience of being loved can transform you. So we've seen the problem of change, the hope for change, and finally I want to give you just a next step for change. That's to, to ask for a fresh, for a new experience with God. Uh, not just new information about God, but a new experience with with him. Now, that new experience might be your first encounter with him. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced what I'm talking about. 
Where you're like, I, I, yeah, Bill, I do know some stuff about it. I mean, I've had the sense of, yeah, God loves the world and all that, but I don't know if I've ever experienced that this is for me. He really loves me. Maybe that new experience that you're asking for is, God, would you, would you make that real for me? Would you make me alive in your love in a way that I never have before? That new experience might be a renewal of a long dormant relationship. Maybe you have had an experience like this some time in your past where you really did have a sense that God loved you and that you trusted him, that he really had forgiven your sins, that you were trusting him alone. But then I don't know what happened in your life. Maybe you got busy. Maybe it was college. Maybe there was suffering. Maybe there was pain. I don't know. But at some point, you stopped experiencing it and you walked away. And you just need to say, God, would you, would you stop hiding from me? Would you, would you make your, would you give me a fresh experience? Not just of knowing a truth, a, a fact that you love me, but would I experience that love? You might have to be patient in that. But keep asking for it. A new experience might be an, uh, asking for a deeper sense of that presence and delight. Maybe you're sitting here, Bill, and you're saying, amen. I, I'm just right where I'm at. I sense God's love for me so palpably. Would you ask that he would take that and use it to transform you? But wherever you're at this morning, ask for a fresh experience, a new experience of God's love for you. Have you had that Wesley-like experience? Not just the information that God forgives sins, but the, has the experience of taking away sins, my sins. If you have, continue to ask God the experiences of love's love, his nearness, his presence, his delight in you, that you would know that rachamim, that tender, compassion, love of a mother for her child. Would you sense that from your heavenly Father? That tender attachment, healing, mind renewing, never stopping, never giving up love. And again, this is not something you can make up or manufacture. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm not asking you to work yourself up into a sense of this. But it is something you can ask for. It is something you can set a moment aside to focus on. Sometimes I think, honestly, like we have these things in our pockets. And the second we feel bored, the second we feel sad, we can pull it out. And we don't even get to the cha- place where we just pause and we say, God, I'm really, I'm really sad. I, I'm really lonely. Would, would you help me to experience it right now. So maybe just take some time this week. The sun sets around 8, 8.15 these days. Maybe you set an alarm on your phone for 8.15 and you just take a walk in your neighborhood. You sit in your backyard or you go out on the balcony of your apartment or whatever it is. Maybe you're like, Bill, I don't have a balcony or a backyard. <laughs> My apartment's so small. Go for a walk. Wherever you're at, get somewhere where you can watch the sunset. And as you do that, meditate again on the words of Isaiah 49, 15, and 16. Again, this is where maybe you feel, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And then here's response. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my write that down, that verse, Isaiah 49, 15. Put an appointment on your phone and watch the sunset and ask that that verse, God's love for you, would become real.
got those down. That's where we're heading. We're going to unpack a lot more of how this works, but we have to have the foundation of being loved by God. That's the only way we're going to make lasting change. Because Jesus died not just so he could acquit you and then stand far off from you. No, he died so that he could acquit you of your sins, yes, and adopt you into his family so you could become his child. He is looking for you. He will never leave the room. He will never be, he's never embarrassed by you. And he will stick with you until he makes you new in every single dimension of your life. But only if you stop hiding from him, only if you stop resisting him, only then can that experience of being loved transform you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have loved us in this way. And I pray that that love would make us new. In Jesus' name, amen.